the presentation of anarchism, anarchism. as social philosophy which aims at the emancipation, economic, social, political, and spiritual of the human race. The Anarchist Essays is brought to you by Loughborough University's Anarchism Research Group. For more information on the ARG, see the link in the show notes or follow us on Twitter at ARGLBORO. For a just and better world, engendering anarchism in the Mexican borderlands, 1900 to 1938, by Sonia Hernandez. Mexicanas in the Gulf of Mexico region, such as Caritina Piña Montalvo and others who take center stage in this book, fought to promote labor rights locally and abroad. They did so by promoting anarchist ideals and envisioning a community of workers, regardless of geopolitical borders. That is, Piña and colleagues fought on behalf of workers in Mexico and fellow workers abroad, remaining true to the anarchist ideal of a nationless world. While mainstream media outlets and state reports often labeled women like Piña, quote, women of ill repute, revealing how entrenched ideas of gender and sexuality shaped perceptions about women's engagement in radical labor activism, their ideas about the labor struggle reflected some of the most progressive expressions of gender equity in labor at that time. They promoted labor rights and remained loyal to the anarchist principle of direct action. In great part, anarchism and its more structured incarnation, anarcho-syndicalism, which privileged unions and collectives, flourished due to geography. Ports of entry, including Tampico, in the Mexican state of Tamaulipas, bordering Texas, had historically functioned as conduits or midpoints between Mexico, the Caribbean, and greater Latin America, and communities across the Atlantic. Residents, transients, and workers from these points of entry shared ideas about culture, politics, and certainly concerns over labor inequities, inadequate living conditions, and gender inequality. While the exchange of ideas among people from the Tampico and Villa Cecilia region, which was a working class neighborhood, as well as other ports of entry, had deep roots, the Mexican Revolution, manifested as early as the 1880s and unleashed by 1910, paved the road for more robust social, economic, and political demands, including women's labor rights. This history serves as the backdrop for the emergence of activists such as Caritina Piña. Piña's parents were Felicitas Montalvo from Rancho El Manchón on the outskirts of Ocampo in southern Tamaulipas and former Revolutionary General Nicanor Piña Hernández from Ocampo. The town of Ocampo was founded in 1749 as Villa de Santa Bárbara. In 1869, it was renamed Ocampo in honor of liberal thinker Melchor Ocampo and by 1898 was deemed a town. Surrounded by incredible vegetation and soaring mountains, the town is still known as the Orchard or Vergel of Tamaulipas. Local chroniclers from Ocampo claim Piña was born in that town between 1899 and 1902, but Piña was most likely born sometime in 1895, as the 1930 census reports that she was a 35-year-old resident of the working-class neighborhood of Villa Cecilia. Piña's parents were not married to each other, Nicanor nonetheless recognized Caritina as his natural child, 
surname and all. Possibly by 1902, Peña's mother married Federico de Leon. It appears that her stepfather accepted her, but tragically within six years of that marriage, Peña's mother died, orphaned and perhaps unwilling to remain with her stepfather as a vulnerable 13-year-old Piña joined her biological father and his other children, and by the end of the Mexican Revolution, the family moved to the port of Tampico. It was during her time in the Tampico, Sicilia region that Piña met the former Pancho Villa soldier Esteban Mendez Guerra and Liberado Rivera, longtime friend and collaborator of Ricardo Flores Magón, a member of the Hermanos Rojos or Red Brothers, a leading anarcho-syndicalist organization based in Villa Cecilia dating to 1917, Mendes Guerra was an early anarcho-syndicalist and among the principal organizers of the Comité Internacional Progresos Sociales, for which Caritina Piña served as Secretary of Correspondence in the 1920s. Mendes Guerra was born on August 3, 1896 in Zacatecas. After fighting in the 1915 Battle of El Ebano in the Tampico oil fields, he moved to Villa Cecilia. The older Liberado Rivera was born on August 17, 1864, in Rayón San Luis Potosí. After Flores Magón's death, Rivera, at the suggestion of anarchist allies in Mexico City, moved to Tapico, Cecilia, arriving in 1924, only a couple of years after Piña's own journey to the region. His Mexico City colleagues, who remained in contact with the Hermanos Rojos convinced Rivera to relocate to Tampico, Sicilia because, quote, the various anarchist organizations' activities were having an impact on the interests of Wall Street. While it is unclear whether Piña maintained a close relationship with Rivera, she played a crucial role in his release from prison on several occasions. Equally important to this network was Felipa Velázquez. She was born in 1882 in Western Mexico in the state of Sinaloa. Velázquez taught herself to read and received formal training as a school teacher. Shortly after beginning her tenure as a teacher, however, local authorities removed her from her plaza or post, citing her activism in the agrarian reform movement in the border state of Baja California. Both Piña and Velázquez became members of the Confederación General de Trabajadores, or CGT, the principal national anarchist organization to which the smaller local and regional organizations like Hermanos Rojos were adhered after its founding in 1921. Piña, Velázquez, and other women shared experiences expressed through correspondence, commentaries, and other writings which helped to create a sense of a community. Equally important, the environment in which these women lived and interacted with others shaped their radical labor activism. Villa Cecilia emerged as a working-class town, servicing the growing cosmopolitan port of Tampico as the petroleum industry expanded in the early 20th century. It was home to one of the top three oil fields at the time, British-owned El Aguila, and by 1915, it became the site of major military encounters between opposing revolutionary factions. The Tampico region and surrounding areas, including oil labor camps near Pozos Petroleros, or these oil wells, also witnessed some of the early massive strikes supported in great part by anarchist groups. By the late 19th century, mutual aid societies and other labor-based collectives appeared as the population of oil workers and associated industrial workers grew. By 1917, a range of labor unions based on specific trades espousing anarchist ideas emerged. 
The region quickly became a leading site for radical labor activism via anarcho-syndicalism, privileging organizing through labor unions and collectives committed to direct action strategies. Expressing support for labor rights, women employed a gendered rhetoric that, while rooted in the language of anarcho-syndicalism, privileged motherhood and maternalism during a period in which the Mexican state used that same rhetoric to craft a more unified national narrative. This gendered rhetoric complemented, clashed with, competed with, or reinforced ideas of a larger women's rights movement that had developed in the early 20th century in great part to push for women's suffrage. In anarcho-syndicalist fashion, Piña and her colleagues believed in direct action in the form of strikes, protests, and spreading knowledge via the sharing of labor news across communities. They rejected participation in any political party or state entity and neither promoted nor engaged with the women's suffrage movement. During the 1920s and 1930s, Piña's ambit consisted of women and men from the Tampico, Sicilia region, not only concerned with local and national labor developments, but also attuned to the precarious situation of workers abroad. Their local activism reached workers from other parts of the country, across a border into Texas and other U.S. states, and across the Atlantic. Equally important, external labor matters shaped developments in this local network. The group engaged labor organizations outside its community, which helped them make sense of their own conditions and struggles. It also raised funds locally to send across state lines and across the border into Texas, among other places, while also asking for outside donations to fund local initiatives. Thus, the network assumed a Mexican and regional character, but operated in transnational ways. 19th century ideas of domesticity and femininity guided much of the debate about women's place in society, and particularly in discussions about labor matters. These ideas about the presumed proper roles of women and men reflected deeply entrenched social values. As historians examining Mexican women's labor have shown for women in urban centers as well as in the countryside. As I show in this book, Piña often advocated labor rights by invoking the unique position of female workers as mothers or future mothers. While this strategy challenged normative gender ideas via broader ideas about equality, it also had the potential to reinforce existing gender inequalities. The idea and practice of domesticity and maternalism still figured prominently in shaping women's work identities as well as their activism, even in radical anarchist circles, and for both working class and middle class female workers. But Bina's deployment of a maternalistic politics exemplified what could be called an anarcho-maternalism that directly challenged the state as a primary guarantor of women's rights. In this way, Bina's motherhood discourse was more of a grassroots language, an anarchist expression that took women's reproductive capacity and made it their own, not the state's. Just as Piña avoided subscribing to state dictates or feminist labels, she too avoided subscribing to the idea of state's geopolitical boundaries. She engaged communities as if they were borderless. She and some of her colleagues did not desire to create a nationless or borderless world. They simply functioned as if it were the case. Because of the fluidity with which anarchist ideas circulated across regional contexts and geopolitical borders, Ideas about women's rights based on both local context and feminist ideas abroad 
found a welcoming place in such anarchist circles and outlined a vision of a world free from political boundaries and free from state control. Anarchism's transregional nature in the Gulf of Mexico area was greatly facilitated by the creativity of the local anarchist press, which reinforced older practices of community autonomy while embracing new and imported ideas from abroad. Among the most effective tools residents employed was the direct petición, popular since pre-industrial times. The petición usually took the form of a letter to community representatives as well as to other residents or heads of state. This tradition continued well into the 20th century and became a useful tool to address widespread socioeconomic changes ushered in by modern industrialization. These petitions in the form of public calls for change were printed in the local press or shared through personal correspondence. Letters and commentaries about specific labor activists or appeals to labor justice were featured in anarchist newspapers published locally. Poems, creative writing, manifestos, and commentaries circulated beyond the communities the newspapers served. As was the case in other parts of Latin America, anarchist writings were frequently reprinted and shared among labor organizations elsewhere with similar goals. Featured news and information in these newspapers served a specific purpose as newspapers were not neutral conduits of information, as has been written. These news outlets were gatekeepers and filters of ideas, as historians have noted. It was through the sharing of ideas in print, as well as close interactions in communities and work sites among Mexicans from the countryside and other growing urban centers and recent arrivals from Europe, Latin America, and the United States, that ideas about labor rights became widespread. It was through the local anarchist press that women such as Pina and her colleagues learned about labor matters abroad while also sharing their localized concerns. The regional network's ideas about maternalism and women's place in society migrated across communities and were further shared, informing a continuous reconstruction of women's identities. Shaped by local and extra-local class and gendered ideas, Mexican women participated in such transnational circuits. These ideas resonated strongly as the number of women workers increased nationwide. For women in the Tampico Cecilia area, accustomed to a community that supported labor organizing, the calls were heard loud and clear. Everyday experiences in this context of labor organizing, as well as what was learned or accumulated about other women's experiences in similar situations, informed Piña's labor network. These multidirectional solidarities reflected how women's labor activism embodied a transnational process made in the circulation of ideas and not simply a product of local conditions. Such transnational feminist identities reflected the anarchist tradition as a type of liberation of a continuous learning and relearning of others' plight and struggle that shaped the ways in which women made sense of their embattled communities and those facing similar conditions far away. Caritina Piña continued her activism, working closely with the Comité Internacional Progresos Sociales, the committee that had dedicated itself to the freeing of political prisoners, up until the 1930s. Her father's death marked an abrupt end for Piña in the world of labor activism. She had, by the early 1930s, abandoned the region along with the Comité and other political activism in the port of Tampico. 
While in Ocampo, in 1937, she married her old housemate and partner, Gregorio Ortiz. He was from a working-class agrarian background from nearby San Luis Potosí, with no apparent connection to the labor movement. She and Ortiz had lived in free union for at least seven years, and Piña likely acted as stepmother to Ortiz's two children, just as her stepfather had cared for her upon her mother's death. Unlike her anarchist colleagues who had hurled strong attacks on the practice and institution of marriage, Piña's ideology did not include such critiques. Piña had grown up surrounded by her step-siblings, including the rebel soldier Senaido Piña, and had been accepted by the family despite the fact that she was living proof of their father's infidelity. Piña and Ortiz either moved in together in 1930 or began living together shortly after Piña arrived with her family in Tampico by the end of the revolution. By 1937, upon her return to the countryside, the couple married in Ocampo on Valentine's Day. There is no record of a religious marriage, but their marriage certificate testifies to both parties' union at the local municipal court in the small town. Together, they lived in Ocampo, where they shared a home. Piña inherited a house and several rural properties in the outskirts of the town from her father, a property in nearby Morelos, far, farther south toward Ortiz's home state of San Luis Potosí, appears to have been registered under her name in the 1950s. In a rare twist of fate between 1950 and 1960, the local cronista or historian of Ocampo writes that part of Piña's rural property toward the southwestern part of Tamaulipas near San Luis Potosí, together with lands belonging to other individuals, was acquired by the Mexican government and redistributed to peasant families as part of Mexico's agrarian reform. A newly created ejido called Lázaro Cárdenas emerged out of those lands on February 21, 1960. There is no evidence indicating Piña fought the actions of the government, and she may have been in agreement with the loss of her inheritance, as the land transferred over to landless campesinos she herself had vowed to defend. The abrupt end of Piña's activism coincided not only with her father's death, but also with the end of the early industrialization phase in the Tampico, Sicilia region. By the dawn of the 1940s, renewed industrialization efforts driven by new technologies focused on automotive and electronics signaled a new era for the region. Labor unionism and associated factories followed. This time, however, while the ideas of anarcho-syndicalism persisted, no real effective anarcho-syndicalist national organization could compete with what seemed to be an unstoppable shift towards state-sanctioned organizing via the Confederación de Trabajadores de México, or the CTM, founded in 1936 during Lázaro Cárdenas' term. By the 1950s, the CTM was almost synonymous with the Mexican government, which still bore the revolutionary label. The victories of the oil workers, many of whom promoted broader CGT goals during the late 19-teens up through the early 1930s, particularly the signing of collective contracts, served as a model for new generations of oil and other types of workers. When the oil industry recovered with the opening of new wells farther south of Tampico, oil workers there created a local of the older Tampico-based El Aguila Union. While the 1940s brought new challenges despite the nationalization of the oil industry in 1938, the early anarcho-syndicalist ideas that shaped much of Tampico and Via Cecilia labor culture lived on. While the 1940s brought new challenges, despite the nationalization of the oil industry in 1938, the early anarcho-syndicalist ideas 
that shaped much of Tampico and Villa Cecilia labor culture lived on. Despite the lack of full biographical details for many of the anarcho-feminists, including Caritina Piña, engaged in the regional labor network, we can draw larger lessons from what we do know concerning their activism. Radical labor activism in the Mexican borderlands in the anarcho-syndicalist tradition was an uneven process in which women's ideological positions did not obey strict boundaries of organizational affiliation. Local, national, and global concerns informed women's activism and deeply influenced their interactions with other women and men, as well as their relationships with other organizations. Localized ideas about race, nationalism, and gender norms, as well as borders or their decision to engage labor issues as if no geopolitical border existed, further shaped women's identities and their activism during the period under examination. The crucial early organizing on behalf of workers from various backgrounds, carried by a number of other women we have not discussed here yet, but are included in the book, leading up to and during the revolution when Caritina Piña was a teenager, as well as the willingness of some anarcho-syndicalist organizations to open their doors to women, paved the road for other women to follow suit. The tradition of embracing all workers, regardless of international boundaries, with the principal caveat that workers would unite for their own benefit, not for the benefit of government via an organized political party, defined the early anarcho-syndicalist efforts in this region. While only a handful of women appear on the roster of some of the leading anarchist affiliates early on, the newspapers sponsored by these and other organizations featured numerous female voices. Women's insistence that they too needed to fight for the good of all humanity, as well as their commitment to rejecting all political entities, was heard loud and clear. In short, Piña embodied the shifting of gender politics in Mexico's Gulf Coast region that formed part of a greater transformation unfolding throughout the country and its borders. As she challenged the modern ideals of the new government that sought to use the memory of the revolution to legitimize its power, she embodied those same modern ideals as a woman whose gendered and class-based activism challenged prescribed boundaries set by the Mexican state. At the same time, she embodied a rejection of state authority as her activism was further shaped by her deeply rooted commitment to anarchist tradition within a community-based framework. Her use of motherhood, sisterhood, and compañerismo, and of the idea of the great family to promote labor rights reflected her own type of negotiation. She and others in her ambit decided what those terms meant. While women and other labor movements shaped by socialism and communism also employed the language of maternalism and motherhood, as well as anti-clerical ideas, those engaged in anarcho-syndicalism rejected any association of maternalism with religion or any type of god or larger being and rejected state affiliation. Anarcho-syndicalists were indeed among the most radical of female activists in the country at that time. Piña's vision and articulation of a transnational feminism defied geographical boundaries just as much as ideological, social, and cultural limits. Her own ideas about race and gender shaped her brand of feminism, which placed women's privileged position as reproducers of community at the heart of a labor justice agenda. Her approach helped to sustain the global labor movement through her active role in spreading knowledge about the movement itself. 
She invoked the language of worker dignity as a way to provide a larger context with which to underscore women as worthy of equal treatment. While there were contradictions and ambiguities in women's use of the language of motherhood, the frequent use of the idea, as well as women's multiple positions as mothers, wives, caregivers, and as workers, reveals how it remained a useful tool with which to engage in indirect action. References to women's roles as, quote, reproducers of the labor force and as contributors to the production process of labor itself, quote, at low or no cost, continued to shape public discourse. Despite Biña's heretofore absence in Latin American labor, U.S.-Mexican borderlands, and women's historiography, she promoted and sustained the greater anarcho-syndicalist movement and shaped the larger question of women's place in the world of labor. Her activism rooted in anarchist ideas, as well as that of her colleagues, lent itself to a transnational feminism that sought labor equity for all, complementing the nationless vision promoted by the PLM, the IWW, the COM, and the CGT. It also was an anarcho-feminism that could complement, compete with, and at times also reinforce ideas about the larger women's movement and women's status. Limits and all, their radical labor activism reveals how the road to real democracy in Mexico involved deep engagement on the part of women from borderlands communities, long seen as peripheral. Such activism assumed a central position in the larger labor movement, and while ultimately organized labor became an arm of the state by the mid-1930s, the ideas rooted in anarchist thought lingered for the next several decades and remained part of the legacy of women's labor history. Thank you for listening. To help others find Anarchist Essays, please rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're interested in anarchist ideas, why not check out the journal Anarchist Studies? For over 20 years, Anarchist Studies has been publishing original research on the history, theory, and practice of anarchism. For more information, visit www.lwbooks.co.uk forward slash anarchist studies.